Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Or perhaps I should now say your co-host, as Dr. David Sigmon has been doing a great job creating new episodes, and I hope you've all been enjoying them as much as I have. Now, as chosen by my Twitter poll, we are covering the dynamic duo of Drs. DeBakey and Cooley, whose careers are forever entwined. This is not just because they work together, although relatively briefly, but because of their infamous falling out and eventual reconciliation. Oh, spoiler alert. Given how much there is to cover, we're going to break it down into two episodes. This first one will be an introduction to both characters, their early training, and eventual meeting. The second will cover more of both of their lengthy careers and accomplishments, their falling out and bearing of the hatchet, so to speak. So let's get the blood pumping and meet these two giants of cardiovascular surgery in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's begin with Dr. Michael Ellis DeBakey. And right away, here's the first interesting fact. That is not his birth name. <gasps> he was born Michel DeBaghi. So for those who work in an OR, think next time you ask the scrub nurse to pass you the DeBakey forceps, a common surgical instrument, you really mean to ask for the DeBaghi's. So Michel DeBaghi was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana on September 7th, 1908. He was the eldest of five children, with three sisters and one brother, Ernest, a.k.a. Ernie, who would go on to become a thoracic surgeon. His parents, Shaker Morris and Rahija Zorba Debagi, were Lebanese Christian immigrants who spoke French and later anglicized the name to Debakey. And here's our first historical interlude. Lebanon has a lengthy and fascinating history, including the effects of religion on the development of the country, which would play a role in bringing the Debakey family to America. Given its location, the presence of humans in Lebanon dates back to prehistoric times. By the second millennium BCE, the people known as Northern Canaanites lived there and were creators of the oldest known 24-letter alphabet. The coastal trading cities became known as Phoenicia, and of course you've probably heard of the Phoenicians, who flourished there for a thousand years, even founding colonies as far as Cadiz in Spain and Carthage in North Africa. Now the area declined and was eventually captured by Persia under Cyrus the Great in 539 BCE. From there, the Macedonian ruler Alexander the Great, in his bid to conquer the world, took over in 332 BC. Christianity was introduced from the neighboring state of Galilee, and by the 4th century, Lebanon became incorporated into the Christian Byzantine Empire, and the Lebanese Christians there became known as the Maronites, after a hermit named Maron. Whew, okay, let's keep going. The area fell to Muslim Arabs in the 7th century CE, but a strong Christian community remained. Of course, this made Lebanon a target for the Crusades, launched by European Christians wanting to reclaim former Roman territories in the eastern Mediterranean. Frankish nobles, meaning from France, occupied areas within present-day Lebanon, which created centuries of support for the Maronites from France and Italy, even after the Crusades. The Ottoman Empire then ruled from 1516 until the end of the First World War. But by the 19th century, the area became a center of silk production for Europe, mainly shifting to Marseille and France, further involving the French in the region. The Maronite Christians were persecuted by the Ottomans, and they openly rebelled, backed by France. This continued for some time, but that's at least the backdrop to help us understand what Dr. DeBakey's parents were fleeing from. They chose to emigrate from Lebanon due to oppression from the Ottomans, and chose Cajun country in the U.S., as French was spoken there. Our loss in Canada that they didn't choose Quebec. So what exactly does Cajun mean and where does it come from? 
Well, again, Canada comes into the picture here. On the Canadian East Coast, in an area now involving the province of Nova Scotia and adjacent areas, there was a French colony known as Acadia. The British drove the French out of the captured colony in the so-called Great Expulsion in the mid-18th century after they refused to sign an unconditional oath of allegiance to Britain. They then settled in the bayou of southern Louisiana, an area that had been settled by French colonists since the late 17th century. The name Acadia is credited to the Italian explorer Giovanni de Verrazzano, who had been commissioned by King Francis I of France to find a sea route to the Pacific Ocean in the area between Florida and Terra Nova, a.k.a. Newfoundland, or Newfoundland, the name of a Canadian province. He actually named it Arcadia, from a district in Greece which since antiquity had also meant refuge or idyllic place. So, Cajun evolved from the French Lacadians, or people from Acadia. Now you know. And once they settled, DeBakey's father, a businessman, got involved with establishing rice farms, drugstores, and estate agencies. Michael worked in the drugstore for his father, helping with the books. He became inspired to enter the medical field after meeting a number of local physicians at the store. His mother was a seamstress, and she taught young Michael how to sew, crochet, knit, and tat. Side note, tatting is a way of handcrafting durable lace using knots and loops, and is not a reference to tattoos or tattooing. Side side note, the word tattoo is thought to date back to Captain James Cook's ship, The Endeavor. The naturalist on board was Joseph Banks, and he's credited with taking the word tattoo from the Tahitian and Samoan languages while they sailed through Polynesia in 1769. The word appears in Cook's diary as both a noun and a verb. In the languages of origin, it meant to mark twice with color, or to mark and puncture. And now you know that. So DeBakey learned his mother's craft, which we'll see will come in very handy, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. As a boy of 10, he was able to sew his own shirt, and Michael attended school at Lake Charles and played the saxophone. His parents strongly encouraged their children to get a good education and required them to check out a book from the library each week. One famous story goes that Michael wanted to check out a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which was the internet before that was a thing, for those that don't know, but the librarian told him that he couldn't. So his father purchased a set, which Michael read from beginning to end. Michael also learned French and German, again skills that would help him later in life. He participated in the Boy Scouts and even won awards for the vegetables that he'd grown in his garden. Following high school, DeBakey went to Tulane University in nearby New Orleans, where he took just two years to complete the pre-medical course, earning a BSc in 1929. During his undergraduate years, he continued to play music, but not only the saxophone, which he'd previously mastered and played in the school's marching band, but also the clarinet, which he'd purchased himself so he could join the university's orchestra. DeBakey would often mention later in his career that playing musical instruments taught him both dedication and manual dexterity, which he considered necessary qualities for a surgeon. He continued at Tulane in the medical school, graduating in 1932, but not before making his first significant contribution to medicine. As a final year medical student at the age of 23, DeBakey adapted old pumps and rubber tubing into a version of the roller pump, which would go on to be important in heart-lung machines. See podcast 63. This was originally a hand-cranked pump to help a researcher study pulse waves for fluids such as blood, but DeBakey discovered that it had practical uses, including in blood transfusions, where he would use it to transfuse blood drawn directly from a donor into the recipient. 
And from 1933 to 35, DeBakey remained in New Orleans to complete his internship and residency in surgery at the Charity Hospital, which was founded in 1736 through a gift in the last will and testament of Jean-Louis, a French shipbuilder who had died in New Orleans. The original hospital was meant to serve the homeless in the French colony and was located in what is now the French Quarter and named the Charity Hospital for the Poor. I could go on, but we've got a lot of ground to cover. So while there, DeBakey received a master's degree for his research on stomach ulcers. His surgical mentors during this training period included Rudolf Mattis and Alton Oschner. He would translate medical articles for them from French and German journals, the first important use of his language skills as it relates to his medical career, and they both played important roles in his development as a surgeon. Now, those translated articles came from Rudolf Mattis's own personal foreign journal library. They would have a professional and personal relationship for many years. Now, Mattis was an interesting character, to say the least, fluently speaking six different languages and being called the world's most educated physician by none other than Dr. Will Mayo of the Mayo Brothers. He was also friends with Dr. William Halstead, see episode 35, who actually secretly operated on Mattis, performing an orchiotomy or incision into the testicle, for what has been suggested was a seminoma, a type of testicular tumor. Now, this was done on the third floor of Halstead's house in Baltimore, and he even kept it a secret from his wife. Sadly, this was not his only medical misfortune, as he lost his right eye to an infection he acquired while operating on a patient with a gonococcal tubal ovarian abscess. DeBakey was actually interviewed about Mattis, which was published. In it, DeBakey describes being invited to watch the Mardi Gras parade from Dr. Mattis's house. He also mentions that by the time he knew him, Dr. Mattis was no longer operating, but referred his patients to Dr. Oshner, another of DeBakey's mentors. So let's cover him now. now. Alton Oshner, at the age of just 31, was brought to Tulane to replace the soon-to-be-retiring Dr. Mattis in 1926, becoming the chair of the Department of Surgery. He actually instituted something that became known as the bullpen, which made me break out in a cold sweat just reading about it. In the amphitheater of Charity Hospital, the teaching hospital of Tulane Medical School by this point, all fourth-year medical students would undergo a cross-examination on making and defending a particular diagnosis, while hundreds of students and faculty watched. Yikes. DeBakey began working in Oshner's laboratory in his last year of medical school, and must have done well in his bullpen trial because it was Oshner that encouraged him to pursue a surgical career. DeBakey even served as a babysitter to Oshner's four children. Two of these children would go on to become surgeons, and at least one, John, would be trained directly by DeBakey. Now, it was in 1936, after DeBakey returned from additional training in Europe, which we'll get to, when he and Oshner published the first article noting a link between smoking and lung cancer. This came about when they documented the rapid rise in primary lung cancers in the early decades of the 20th century and suggested the correlation between smoking and lung cancers. As a medical student, Oshner remembered being summoned to observe a lung cancer surgery and was told that he might never see it again in his career due to its rarity. He would defend this association despite being criticized and ridiculed by his peers. Now that sounds depressingly familiar, doesn't it? But let me leave this topic on a better note, with a cute little anecdote I came across. In Mobile, Alabama, Ajner was giving a presentation on the relationship between smoking and lung cancer. 
An audience member told him that in their community, there was also an association between smoking and rectal cancer. They asked, could Dr. Oshner explain that? To which he replied that he could not, quote, unless people in Mobile inhaled much more deeply than those in New Orleans, end quote. Like so many budding surgeons in the 19th and early 20th centuries, DeBakey was encouraged to complete his surgical fellowship in Europe. His two stops included the University of Strasbourg, France, under Professor René Lariche, and at the University of Heidelberg, Germany, under Professor Martin Kirschner. See, I told you his early education in French and German would come in handy. So, who were these two European surgeons? Well, let's start with René Lariche. A one-time colleague of Dr. Alexis Carrel, see Podcast 20, he may be best known for his description of aortoiliac occlusive disease, today called Lariche syndrome. He described it in 1923 and again in 1940, as his research began to focus on ischemic leg pain, meaning a lack of blood flow to the leg. Now, this was caused by obstruction of the aorta, just above its division, or bifurcation, down into the legs. The symptoms include absent or diminished femoral pulses, intermittent claudication, which means pain and weakness of the legs with activity, and by the way, the word claudication comes from the Latin claudus, meaning lame, along with pallor, or paleness, coldness, and diffuse muscle atrophy, or wasting of both legs, and impotence. Interestingly, Lariche suggested that this could be treated surgically by removing the obstructed segment and replacing it with a vascular graft, which would be done by his own student, the surgeon Jean Kuhnlin, in 1947, 25 years after Lariche suggested it. As his fame grew, Lariche was promoted to Strasbourg in France, which was becoming a place of pilgrimage, to borrow a phrase, for surgeons from around the world. It was here that he taught DeBakey, among many others. DeBakey actually wrote a paper about his time there entitled The Clinic of Professor René Lariche, and described, quote, the technical perfection of the delicate manipulations of this master surgeon, end quote. Now, during German occupation of France in World War II, Lariche continued his work in Portugal before returning to France. Now here a shadow falls over our tale, as Lariche was elected president of the Superior Council of the National Order of Physicians, which was created by the Vichy government, the French administration that collaborated with the Nazis. Now, during this period, he had been accused of the denunciation of French-Jewish physicians. Okay, so let's get to DeBakey's other European mentor, Dr. Martin Kirschner of Heidelberg, Germany. Now, for those of you that work in plastic or orthopedic surgery, you're probably familiar with the ubiquitous K-wire, used in a wide variety of procedures. But did you know that the K stands for Kirschner? He's also famous for performing the first successful pulmonary embolectomy, or removal of an embolus within the pulmonary artery, in 1924, which I touched on in a previous episode. So I won't go over his achievements, which are many, and like many of the leading surgeons of the day, cross over into numerous specialties. Now, before we leave Europe and head back stateside, I wanted to let you know about an interesting and disturbing anecdote that found its way to me serendipitously. And by the way, did you know that the word serendipity was coined in 1754 in reference to a Persian fairy tale called the Three Princes of Serendip, an old name for Sri Lanka? In the story, the princes were, quote, always making discoveries by accidents and sagacity of things which they were not in quest of, end quote. Okay, so what was this act of serendipity? 
Well, a recent article by the author Thomas Morris came to me discussing some events around Dr. DeBakey's time in Germany. Now remember, he was there right around the time of Hitler's rise to power. In an interview in 1972, DeBakey recalled working in Germany with Dr. Kirschner and another surgeon named Ernst, whom DeBakey befriended and socialized with. Now Ernst was a Nazi, and DeBakey even attended meetings with him. Now this fact alone doesn't look good, but may be defended by ignorance of the political situation in a foreign country and continent, although only barely defended. But it gets far worse. In Heidelberg, DeBakey witnessed a number of sterilization procedures. He asked his German colleagues if all of these patients really wanted to be sterilized and was told that they were ordered to by a tribunal of three judges for three possible reasons. Insanity, carrying inheritable diseases, or being Jewish. When asked by the interviewer, DeBakey reveals that he assisted on some of these operations and may have been the primary surgeon in some. While he did walk his statement back a bit, stating that he was only involved from a technical standpoint and was more observer rather than active participant, it certainly does suggest DeBakey was at least briefly involved in the deplorable Nazi policy of eugenics. Now that's a whole other topic that we may cover in the future. But for now, let's move on. Upon his return from Europe, DeBakey married Diana Cooper, with whom he would go on to have four sons. She passed in 1972, and DeBakey later married German actress Katrin Fellhaber, and they had one daughter together. He began his career as a staff surgeon back at Tulane Medical School and served on the surgical faculty from 1937 to 1948, with a brief interlude during World War II. He actually volunteered for service, feeling it was his duty to serve. His colleagues at Tulane pleaded that he be declared essential at the medical school so he would have to stay stateside, but it was to no avail. During the war, DeBakey served in the U.S. Army as director of the Surgical Consultants Division in the Surgeon General's office and later held the rank of colonel in the United States Army Reserve. Apparently, he lived for a time with General George Patton. In 1945, he received the Legion of Merit Award. While serving, DeBakey realized that injured soldiers would do better if treated closer to the front lines rather than being transported to distant hospitals and created the Auxiliary Surgical Group, which would later become Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals, a.k.a. MASH units, which improved survival rates of wounded soldiers, particularly in the Korean War, and helped to create a very popular TV show. Another initiative he took on that at least began during his military career was the conversion of the Surgeon's General Library into the National Library of Medicine, which is under the direction of the National Institutes of Health. Working for the Surgeon General, DeBakey's main job was to write down everything they did. This led him to notice that the Surgeon's General National Library of Medicine, which was run and housed by the Army, was in a small room with a leaky roof and packed too tight. Knowing the priceless wealth of information it contained, DeBakey campaigned to have a new library built in Washington. Being wartime, he was told that the Army was more concerned with purchasing tanks than building a library. In DeBakey's words, quote, That triggered in my mind suddenly that it didn't belong in the Army. It was a national treasure, end quote. After the war, he would lead the charge that led to a bill passing in Congress in 1956 that created the National Library of Medicine, which now is located in Bethesda, Maryland. After the war, DeBakey returned to Tulane, but only briefly, 
as he would join the faculty of Baylor University College of Medicine in Houston, Texas in 1948, serving as chairman of the Department of Surgery until 1993, a run of 45 years. The story goes that DeBakey was originally underwhelmed by the offer to chair the surgery department of Baylor and actually turned the position down twice before accepting. His concerns included the fact that, when he started, Baylor University College of Medicine was not affiliated with any teaching hospital, had no residency program, no surgical service, and no NIH, or National Institute of Health, research grants. Of course, all of that would change during his time there, as he quickly went to work building what would become a world-class medical center. It was early on in his tenure that DeBakey hired an up-and-coming hotshot surgeon named Denton Cooley in 1951, with whom he would collaborate frequently until Cooley's resignation from his faculty position at the college in 1969, but now we are getting ahead of ourselves. So let's talk about Dr. Cooley and get up to speed on him. Born on August 22nd of 1920 in Houston, Denton's father was a dentist and his mother was a homemaker. He had one brother named Ralph whom he called the best friend I ever had. In high school, Denton was a successful athlete standing at six foot five. He made the freshman basketball team in university and made the varsity team as a sophomore eventually becoming a star player for the team, which won the Southwest Conference Championship in 1939. The fun fact, in 2003, the UT practice and training facility for the men's and women's basketball teams was named the Denton A. Cooley Pavilion in his honor. Now, while at the University of Texas at Austin, he was also a member of the Kappa Sigma Fraternity and the Texas Cowboys, an elite service organization. Among other things, the Cowboys were responsible for keeping and maintaining Smokey the Cannon, which is present at all Texas Longhorn home football games. More recently, the group has had a couple of suspensions following hazing rituals that led to the death of two young UT students, but that's a whole other story. Cooley majored in zoology with a minor in English and graduated Phi Beta Kappa with highest honors. In fact, his undergraduate studies were actually pre-dental, with him planning to follow in his father's footsteps. But he became increasingly interested in medicine. One particular anecdote was that Cooley received an impromptu lesson on wound stitching while visiting a friend of a friend who was working in an overwhelmed emergency department and soon switched to pre-med. Cooley's medical training began at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, inspired by Ernst Bertner, his family obstetrician and a founder of the Texas Medical Center. Now, initially, Cooley was planning to study to be an OBGYN, but his plans were disrupted by history. Shortly after the U.S. entered World War II in 1941, the Texas legislator began investigating German sympathizers and spies at UTMB. Cooley was worried that his studies would be stalled, and so he moved to Baltimore to continue his education at Johns Hopkins. There, Cooley completed his medical degree and his surgical training at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, where he also completed his internship. Now, who do we know who worked at Johns Hopkins in the cardiac surgery department around that time? Why, none other than our old friend Alfred Blaylock, who had recently become the chair of the Department of Surgery and quickly noticed the talented young student. And once again, serendipity comes into play, as only a few months after completing his MD and while working as a surgical intern under Blaylock, Cooley was present for the first Blaylock-Talsig procedure on November 29, 1944. See episode 32. 
Now, this, of course, drew a lot of attention, which led to referrals to the cardiac program, and Cooley wound up assisting in a number of Blaylock procedures. And so we see how a few random events took a student planning on dentistry to the forefront of cardiac surgery. His path from this point was disrupted by the military, as Cooley was called to active duty in 1946 with the Army Medical Corps in war-ravaged Europe. He served at the 124th Station Hospital in Linz, Austria, initially as first lieutenant, but due to a shortage of higher-ranking physicians, Cooley was made chief of surgery, despite not yet completing his surgical training. He was discharged in 1948 with the rank of captain and returned to Johns Hopkins to complete his residency and was hired on as an instructor in surgery. Now, soon after his return to Baltimore, Cooley met Louise Goldsboro Thomas, the head nurse on the main surgical floor at Hopkins, and after one month of dating, he proposed. They married on January 15, 1949, and their daughter Mary was born just over a year later. They would go on to have four more daughters together and would stay married for nearly 70 years, ending with Louise's death in 2016. Now, to further his cardiac surgery training, Cooley moved his young family to London for a year to work with Lord Russell Brock, a leading British cardiac surgeon at the Brompton Hospital for Chest Diseases in the summer of 1950. Brock had spent a month at Hopkins with Blaylock to witness his revolutionary surgery, which is where Cooley had met him, which led to the opportunity to serve as a senior surgical registrar and further his skills in cardiac surgery. After their time in England, the Cooley family returned to the U.S., where Denton joined the faculty of the Department of Surgery at Baylor University College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, under DeBakey, who was the newly minted chairman of the department. Initially, their relationship was a good one, with the two both developing groundbreaking techniques and devices. Unfortunately, having two larger-than-life personalities in the same department led to some disagreements and differences of opinion, which began to take a toll on their relationship. In fact, soon after the Texas Children's Hospital and St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital, now the Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, opened in 1954, Cooley began to transition his practice to these two adjoining hospitals. Now, we will save the heart of the matter, pun intended, for the next episode, as well as detailing both surgeons' contributions to the field of cardiac and vascular surgery, so be on the lookout for that. Okay, before we wrap up, I've been having an issue, in a good way, that so many of you have sent in suggestions that I can't get to them all in a timely fashion. I still want to share them with all of you, and often a tweet doesn't do the subject material justice. So I was thinking that I might include a section at the end of the episodes to do just that. For those of you that work or have worked in the OR, you know that when a lot of sutures are used, the ends that get cut off start to collect, the so-called suture tails. Now maybe that pun is a bit too cute, but I like it. So for now, I will call this section Suture Tales to clean up the odds and ends that we couldn't otherwise get to. Today, I want to address a person and medical artifact brought to my attention by a listener and reader on Facebook. The person is John Julius Chisholm, sometimes Julius John Chisholm, a Confederate surgeon and the artifact, his book, published in 1861 entitled The Manual of Military Surgery. Chisholm was from a well-to-do Southern family and graduated from medical school at the age of 19 at the Medical College of the State of South Carolina with a graduating thesis entitled On Ligatures, which seems appropriate for our first Suture Tales segment. Like many of his contemporaries, Chisholm went to Europe for a time and even witnessed some military trauma, which would come in handy. For shortly after his return to the U.S., 
the Civil War broke out. Realizing that the medical staff of the Army would largely be made up of general practitioners with little surgical and essentially zero trauma experience, he set out to write the Manual of Military Surgery to assist them, a feat he accomplished in just four months after the first shots at Fort Sumter began the conflict. He presented this to Samuel Preston Moore, the Surgeon General of the Confederate States, and on September 20th, 1861, Chisholm was appointed Surgeon to the Army. Now, to help preserve the precious quantities of chloroform needed for surgery, in short supply partly because of Union blockades, he actually invented an inhaler that fit into the nostrils, thereby using far less than the previous technique of simply soaking a cloth and holding it over the mouth. But what really caught my eye, again, pun intended, was his career post-Civil War. In 1868, after additional training in Europe, Chisholm moved to Baltimore to open a practice in ophthalmology and otology, or eyes and ears. It was here where he met his most famous patient. In 1886, a six-year-old girl was brought to his office who was both blind and deaf and had been since a childhood illness at 19 months of age. Chisholm told her father that neither could be corrected, but that he should take her to New York to find out from Dr. Alexander Graham Bell how best to educate her. That little girl was Helen Keller. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, the next episode will be covered by Dr. Sigmund, and I know he's working on some great topics. We will return after that episode for part two of our exploration of Drs. Denton and Cooley. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes, and now also for ideas for Suture Tales. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.